Hello and welcome to this episode of By His Word. I am your host and teacher, Candy Carmichael. Last week we ended our discussion just before the start of the greatest battle that will ever, ever take place on the face of the earth, the Battle of Armageddon. It will take place in central Israel in the Jezreel Valley, also known as the Valley of Megiddo. <clears throat> this area is a 200-square-mile region where some of the most momentous battles in history have been fought. One of the earliest battles was between the Egyptian pharaoh Tutmos III and the Canaanites. The Egyptian army trapped the Canaanites in a siege and six months later won the victory over them. The Jewish judge Deborah and Barak sing praises to God in Judges 5 after Israel defeated the Canaanites in the Valley of Megiddo when the Kishon River flooded and drowned the Canaanites. Gideon later defeated the Midianites in the same valley. Both King Saul and King Josiah died in battles which were fought on this plain. In more modern times, Napoleon fought in a battle there, and General Edmund Allenby's victory at Megiddo forced the Turks to relinquish their 400-year control of Palestine to the British. This eventually resulted in the Balfour Declaration and the establishment of a permanent homeland for the Jews in what is now known as Israel. The valley, or more correctly, the vast plain known as Jezreel, or Megiddo, is a very fruitful area. The Hebrew name of Jezreel means God sows. Jezreel was an area that became part of an international highway for traders, as well as the site for multiple military battles. Three major final wars tie together with the participants as well as as the site. The first battle of Gog and Magog either triggers the rapture or occurs shortly after that. The principal demonic spirits behind this war show up in the final war at the end of the millennium. Let's take a look at these three wars starting first with the battle of Gog and Magog at the start of the tribulation. The prophet Ezekiel ministered as a prophet about 600 years before the birth of Christ. Chapters 38 and 39 of his book are perhaps two of the most important chapters on the prophetic destiny of the nation of Israel. By a careful study of these passages, it can be determined that the events that Ezekiel described have not yet occurred. But since Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit and God does not live in time, biblical prophecy is always 100% accurate. Ezekiel begins chapter 38 in this way. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. And say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaws, and lead you out with all of your army, horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all of its troops, the house of Tagarma from the far north, and all of its troops, many people are with you. Prepare yourself and be ready, you and all of your companies that are gathered about you, and be a guard for them. Ezekiel 38, 1-7. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Ezekiel predicts that in the last days there will be a coalition of nations surrounding Israel that will join together to destroy Israel once and for all. We have been watching the growing hostility and alignment of these nations for years. Many Bible scholars refer to this coming battle as the Battle of Gog and Magog or as the start of World War III. Now, when examining these above passages, most people would ask the following questions. Number one, who is Gog? 
Number two, why is he called a chief prince? Number three, where are Meshach and Tubal? Number four, why are these nations trying to destroy the nation of Israel? And five, who are the other nations described in these verses? The name Gog first appears in 1 Chronicles 5.4 as a descendant of Reuben, the firstborn son of Jacob. Gog is mentioned nine times in Ezekiel 38 and 39. The origin of the name itself is unclear and does not appear to be the name of a man, although the surname of Gog is common throughout Russia and some Eastern European countries. Most prophecy scholars believe that Gog is a chief demonic spirit that inhabits either a specific person or a major principality spirit that propels the armies of nations that seek to destroy the nation of Israel. This idea is further supported by the fact that the term Gog and Magog appears again in Revelation 20, 7-9, when Satan is loosed from the bottomless pit for after a thousand years of church millennial of Christ's millennial reign. Satan immediately starts to gather armies for one final battle in an attempt to overthrow the reign of Christ with the help of Gog. Of course, he is soundly defeated. We will discuss the differences in these two battles a little later. This brings us to the next question of why Gog is called a chief prince. In Ephesians 2, 2, Satan is called the prince of the power of the air and this spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. The Apostle Paul admonishes the Ephesian Christians to put on the entire spiritual armor of God to protect themselves during spiritual warfare. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Ephesians 6, 11 and 12. Other demonic entities of high rank are described in Scripture as being princes. For example, the prophet Daniel had been praying and fasting for 21 days, but no answer to prayer had come. Suddenly, Daniel had a vision, and his messenger revealed that the prince of Persia had hindered him from bringing the message all this time. This prince was a demonic high power over the nation of Persia, but God's prince, the archangel Michael, came to help the other angel from God and to defeat the evil prince of Persia. Daniel's angelic messenger stated that he had to return to fight with the demonic prince of Persia and that the demonic prince of Greece would soon come. We can see from these passages that strong demonic principalities rule over nations and regions on the earth, Daniel 10, 13, and 20. Many people think that Rosh is a reference to Russia and that this is a nation leading the battle against Israel. However, the word Rosh is a Hebrew word meaning head, as in the festival of Rosh Hashanah, which means head of the year, and marks the Jewish civil new year. Rosh is used in scripture nearly 300 times and probably does not refer to Russia in this passage. Meshach and Tubal are mentioned as the sons of Japheth, one of Noah's three sons in Genesis 10:2. It is thought by most Bible scholars that their descendants were in the area of the Black Sea in southern Russia, in Ukraine, or possibly in the Republic of Georgia. There is also evidence that some of them settled in the areas of what is now Turkey. Before the 1979 Islamic Revolution in Iran, that nation was friendly with the West and even had a significant Jewish population. When the Shah of Iran was deposed and the Islamic clerics took over that country, the nation's attitude toward Israel and the Jewish people changed drastically. 
Today, the goal of the Iranian regime is to be the sponsor of multiple proxies that will help them wipe Israel off the map. In this coming battle of Gog and Magog, Persia, which is modern-day Iran, will align with Libya and Ethiopia to come against Israel in a surprise attack. Russia has developed close ties with Iran and is a major supplier of weapons to that nation and its proxies. At this point, Russia is an indirect adversary of Israel, but in the Battle of Gog and Magog, Russia becomes a major player. This brings us to the fourth question of why the nations hate Israel and are trying to destroy it. First of all, there is a Satan-inspired hatred of the nation of Israel and the Jewish people because they were chosen by God and his, as his representative nation and people. Anything that God tries to do, Satan attempts to destroy. This is especially true of Israel because from that nation came Jesus, who will ultimately destroy Satan forever. If anything can be done to thwart the inevitable, then Satan will attempt to do it. He uses men and nations as tools to ruin God's plan, but of course he will never succeed. Ezekiel states that in the latter years people would come against Israel as armies to destroy a nation at peace. And you shall come from your place out of the north parts, you and many people with you, all of them riding horses, a great company, and a mighty army. And you shall come up against my people of Israel as a cloud to cover the land. It shall be in the latter days, and I will bring you against my land, that the heathen might know me, when I shall be sanctified before you, O Gog, and before their eyes. The north parts could refer to Russia and to the Islamic republics that are part of Russia, or it could refer to Turkey, Syria, and Lebanon, since many people with you refer to other nations joining in on the fight. In any case, this battle will involve far more than uh, conventional human warfare, including nuclear weapons. God himself will intervene in this war to rescue Israel. And it shall come to pass at the same time when Gog shall come against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that my fury shall come up in my face. And I will fight against him with pestilence and with blood, and I will rain upon him and upon his bands and upon the many people that are with him, and overflowing rain and great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Ezekiel 38, 18, 22, and 23. God will use the forces of nature as weapons against the enemies of Israel in this, in this war, and the nations will know that there is a God who is far more powerful than any nation, any army, or any evil entity on the earth. This battle will take a devastating toll on the, on the invaders of Israel. Therefore, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn you back and leave only one-sixth of you, and I will cause you to come up from the north parts and bring you upon the mountains of Israel. You shall fall upon the mountains of Israel, you and all of your bands and the people who are with you. I will give you to the ravenous birds of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured." And they that dwell in the cities of Israel shall go forth and set on fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and the bucklers, the bows and the arrows, and the staves and spears, and they shall burn them with fire for seven years. Ezekiel 39, 1, 2, 4, and 9. 
An interesting possibility of the timing of this war connects with a semi-annual event of bird migration in this region. Many scholars believe that the rapture occurs around the time of the fall feast of Rosh Hashanah, also known as the Feast of Trumpets. The Battle of Gog and Magog may precipitate the rapture or occur immediately afterwards. Every spring and fall, there is a migration of huge predatory birds to and from this region. Should this battle occur in the fall, this huge host of ravenous birds would have a feast of dead bodies in the Valley of Megiddo. Notice that it takes seven years to burn the weapons used against Israel. This is a further indication that the battle takes place at the beginning of the tribulation. Now let's fast forward to the end of the tribulation to see how these two wars are connected and how they lead to the final war after the millennium. After nearly three and a half years of the Antichrist rule, the earth is in shambles. The past seven years since the start of the tribulation have devastated the population, destroyed the environment, and brought multiple nations together in a final attempt to overthrow the reign of the evil global leader. As mentioned earlier, any believer who has managed to survive until this time of the final battle of the tribulation will be able to calculate the exact day of Christ's return. It is based on both the signing of the covenant between Israel and the Antichrist and on the date when the Antichrist breaks the covenant and sets himself up in the temple declaring himself to be God. Satan himself knows this date, and he will do everything possible to kill as many people as possible and to try to destroy the Jewish remnant. But his plans are interrupted as he and the rest of the world see the heavens open and Jesus descending to earth. And I saw the heavens open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war." His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron." He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Revelation 9, to 16 Now, we are going to take a short break, and you will find out how you can be witnesses to people in 177 nations around the world. We will be right back. We hope you are enjoying today's show. We believe that God has given us a voice to impact communities and regions all over the world. If you would like to make sure that voice is heard, please partner with us today by visiting www.expressionradio.org and click donate. You can also text give by texting the dollar amount followed by the word radio to the number 84321. First time text givers, please choose Expression Church of Huntington when prompted. All gifts are tax deductible. Join us as we change the world. Welcome back. When the book of Revelation opened in chapter 1, Jesus did not have a crown on his head. This is because he is pictured as the great high priest who is interceding and advocating for believers in the churches on the earth. 
But here, he is returning to earth as the conquering king, and he is wearing many crowns. This signifies his rulership over all the nations on the earth, and he will rule with a rod of iron during the millennium, quenching all dissent and guaranteeing peace for 1,000 years. Now notice that the robe that Jesus is wearing is stained with blood. This is not the blood from his own body that was shed on Calvary. It is the blood of his enemies who are slain at his return. The Bible declares in Isaiah 63, 1-6, that when Jesus returns to the earth, he goes first to Basra, where there is a small Jewish remnant that is hiding in the mountains of Edom and Moab, which is present-day Jordan, according to the biblical archaeologists. Jesus defeats the enemies there and rescues the Jewish people by himself. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the people there was no one with me, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all of my robes. Isaiah 63, verse 3. Next, Jesus also goes to save the tents of Judah, according to Zechariah 12, 7. This is the area of Judea that includes East Jerusalem, which will probably be under Palestinian control during the tribulation. The territory also would include Bethlehem, Ashdod, Ashkelon, and other small towns. Finally, Jesus comes to Jerusalem, where he sets foot on the Mount of Olives, the place where he had ascended to heaven more than 2,000 years earlier, after the crucifixion and resurrection. When this happens, a cataclysmic change in the topography of Jerusalem occurs. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all of the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north, and half of it toward the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for it shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled in the earthquake in the days of King Uzziah of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come, and all of the saints with him. And in it shall come to pass that by that there shall be no light. The lights will diminish, Zechariah 14, verses 1 to 6. This split in the Mount of Olives will be caused by a violent earthquake that splits the mountain in half, creating a huge plain. There is currently a large earthquake fault line that lies beneath the Mount of Olives and the surrounding areas. The land is deemed so unstable that all building permits are refused in these areas because it would be too dangerous to build there. Zechariah goes on to predict the horrifying demise of the enemies of Christ when he returns. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all of the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. It shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. Zechariah 14, 12, and 13. As Satan and his cohorts watch the armies and the armies of the nations rebelling against them all meet the same devastating fate, then panic rises exponentially because now it is their turn for judgment. 
First, the Antichrist and the false prophet meet their doom. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he, de- he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all of the birds were filled with their flesh. Revelation 19, 20, and 21. As you can see, the Lord himself conquers all of the enemies simply with the word of his mouth, with no need for assistance from even the armies of heaven that follow him. Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It can even divide the soul and spirit, meaning that it can bring death to God's enemies. There is no greater example of this than the massive destruction of God's enemies at this battle of Armageddon. Now Jesus gives the task of binding the master deceiver, Satan, to one angel from heaven. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him, so that he would deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Revelation 20, 1-3. How humiliating it will be to Satan to have a rank-and-file angel bind him in front of everyone, including Christ, and throw him into a pit with no bottom, falling constantly end over end for a thousand years. Once Satan, and presumably the demonic hordes with him, are bound for a thousand years, the millennial reign of Christ begins. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not uh, re- and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Revelation 20, verse 4. Not only does Jesus reign supreme, but the church and those who are martyrs for Jesus are resurrected at the end of the tribulation and permitted to reign with Christ. Jesus will most likely assign regions to the saints based on their service to him while they lived on the earth. The remnant of the Jews who are rescued by him at the end of the tribulation will finally recognize Jesus as their Messiah. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for his firstborn. Zechariah 12.10 Those who survive the tribulation will go into the tribulation still in their fleshly bodies and will begin to repopulate the earth. Temple worship... Um, and the Jewish feast will be reestablished. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whosoever of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain." If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, then they shall have no rain. 
they shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, Zechariah 14, 16-19. We can see from these verses that the worship of the Lord will be mandatory. Up until this time, the Lord has always allowed people to have the freedom of choice of whether or not to serve Him. But during this time, there will not be a choice. Of course, those who have been saved, the Bride of Christ, and those who have survived the Tribulation, along with all of the resurrected Old Testament saints, all have new bodies and new natures like Christ. For them, sin is no longer a problem. They, have, they love and worship the Lord freely and joyfully. But those who are still with fleshly bodies and natures may not worship Jesus voluntarily. They will be living in a golden age free from the temptations and harassment of the devil and his angels who are locked up in the bottomless pit. So even though they don't have the incitement of these evil beings, the sinful nature of these people being born during the millennial age are not changed unless they truly give their hearts to the Lord. This will be a time of great evangelism and the final opportunity for all of the servants of Jesus to complete any assignments that, had not, that they had not been able to finish while they were on the earth. There will be untold opportunities to win the nations for Jesus. But as we will see, it will not be 100% successful even with Jesus himself on the earth. Since the scripture says that he rules the nation with a rod of iron, it indicates that the sinful nature of the humans still in fleshly bodies will at times rise in rebellion to Christ's rule. These rebels will be stopped immediately and peace will rule on the earth. Even the Old Testament psalmists and prophets wrote about the coming golden age of the millennium. David wrote of the coming reign of Christ in Psalm 72. He shall judge the people with righteousness and the poor with justice. They will fear him as long as the sun and moon endure, the prophet and throughout all generations. In his days shall, be, shall the righteous flourish and abundance of peace as long as the moon endures. He shall also have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him, and his enemies shall lick the dust. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him, all nations shall serve him. Psalm 72, verses 2, 5, 7 to 9, and 11. The prophet Isaiah penned the words by which Handel wrote his glorious musical, The Messiah. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. And upon the throne of David and upon his kingdoms, to order it and to establish it with the judgment and with justice from now even forever. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. The psalmist declares this future kingdom when Jesus will rule the earth. I have set my kingdom upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, You are my son, this day I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I shall give you the heathen for your inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. Psalm 2, 6-8. When we stop to think of how 
long ago these prophecies were written, we know that God does not live in time. Because Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world, but yet when he came, the Lord promised him that the nations would eventually be his inheritance. This period of the millennial reign of Christ is when he truly becomes king over all of the nations of the earth. The kingdom that has been building during the church age, both on earth and within the hearts of all believers, will finally have nothing to hinder its growth or to challenge its sovereignty. There will be complete peace during this time. Now we are going to continue or conclude the study of time and eternity next week with further study on the millennial reign of Christ and the final battle and the events that follow. Until then, keep looking to Jesus, our soon coming King. We hope you are enjoying today's show. We believe that God has given us a voice to impact communities and regions all over the world. If you would like to make sure that voice is heard, please partner with us today by visiting www.expressionradio.org and click donate. You can also text give by texting the dollar amount followed by the word radio to the number 84321. First time text givers, please choose Expression Church of Huntington when prompted. All gifts are tax deductible. Join us as we change the world.